Tuesday, December 31st, 1901. Home of Sir Hugh and Florence Bell, Red Burns, Red Car, Yorkshire. I sit in this house again, as so often in the past, keeping New Year's Eve. But for the first time for some years, I am alone. The Bell family with Eddie Stanley have all gone off to a ball at Hutton at the Pieces Place. Although I've been wonderfully well of late, it would be rather foolish to drive several hours to get to a ball, stay up till 3 a.m. and drive home in the raw winter morning. No, I have other fish to fry, so I stay behind, sit in my own room reading J.R. Junius's letters in spite of the music and dancing going on downstairs, for the servants are having a ball tonight. The waiters have been here as usual, and the fearsome effect with carols trying to be heard through waltz music was at last met by one of the servants shouting to that din that never have been halted save to fair words and sixpence, and saying in a voice very loud and powerful, Get away! Get away! I tell you! And the astonished carolers fled before the wrath of Robert the groom, wondering, no doubt, in North Country parlance, what has got on with the bells this year? The year has been a time of finding my way back to the work I had been forced to let fall. 1901 began very ill. I grew no better at Paynton, and by and by grew worse. On the 19th of January, Raymond arrived and stayed with me in Devon, but he left for London February 22nd, sailing for the USA on February 24th. I went up to town for medical consultation on the 12th of March. Saw the nerve specialist buzzard, and he and Mackenzie agreed to send me to the Isle of Wight to undergo its Weir Mitchell rest cure. Precisely the wrong thing for me. I, being still invincibly determined to live, survived that grim experience in a room, one entire side of which was glass, against which the incessant rains beat all day long, and where one heard no sound of outside life save howling winds, and looking out saw only a featureless gray sea, with no mere hint of shore, than if I'd been in the mid-Atlantic. This, for one who needed warmth and sunshine diversion, I went back to London no better, worse rather, saw doctors and specialists, mentioned about my eyes, nothing wrong, and yet they're not right, to Sir Lander Brunton. They were far from encouraging, little help, gruesome in his prognostications. I was about done for in his eyes. Brunton says, go to Italy. Caroline Grosvenor and her two girls are in Florence and had already written me to join them. I agree. Stay overnight in Paris at the Heinemann's flat. I'd left London quite definitely doubting if I should get so far as Florence. But I went on and on until I find Caroline Grosvenor, dearest, blessedest of women, and I find Florence. Every day there was a joy equaling a building up of strength but I was from time to time revisited by that Isle of white wretchedness. Whatever rheumatic or what, I don't know. Brunton had said if this should happen, to go to X on my way back. I went. Five weeks there, and a good five weeks up on the top of Mount Reardon, where I began the magnetic north. Welcome to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Kaler. Today's episode examines the rise and fall of rest cures, a favorite prescription of doctors in the Gilded Age. Elizabeth underwent several rest cures herself and then wrote a novel which became a silent film on the subject. 
Her first rescuer is discussed in today's diary entry at the end of 1901. Elizabeth had traveled to see her youngest brother Raymond in Nome, Alaska, where he had moved in 1897 during the gold rush. Both Raymond and Elizabeth contracted typhoid during her visit, and both struggled to physically recover. In fact, Elizabeth would suffer from the repercussions of typhoid for the rest of her life. She traveled the globe to consult doctors and decided to give a rest cure a try. But what is a rest cure, and why don't doctors prescribe them anymore? Or do they, and we've just changed the name? To get that answer, we're going to talk to Dr. Ann Stiles, an assistant professor at St. Louis University and a specialist in the history of rest cures. I'm Ann Stiles, and I'm a professor at St. Louis University in the English department. And my work mostly focuses on Victorian um, or 19th century British and American literature and medical humanities. Medical humanities. I have not heard that. So explain, let's explain that word before we move on. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, anything to do with kind of intersection between humanities and medicine. So um, anything to do with like novels or memoirs about patient experience. I teach a lot of English to pre-meds, basically, is what my job involves. And I write a lot about literature and medicine and how they intersect and, um, you know, novelists who are either patients or who practice medicine in some form interests me as well. Very cool. Some other day we'll have to talk about my hometown in Pennsylvania that was part of the mineral water spring rage uh, in the 1800s. And uh, the town was completely built up around that with a gazillion hotels. And then once it was over, there have been a thousand people there living ever since. Oh, the water cure. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard about those water cures. What town was it? Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania. And it is exactly in between New York and Chicago along Route 19. And so um, people like to, to come and stay there. It's about 30 minutes south of Erie, Pennsylvania. Well, that's really cool. I didn't, I didn't know about that, but I'd heard about the water cures. Yeah. So let's talk, we're talking today about rest cures. So can you just explain for most of us who have never heard of that and maybe people that haven't read Elizabeth's books, what a rest cure is and why people were were taking them? Sure. Well, a rest cure, um, they were popular from the 1870s and 80s on through the early 20th century, maybe until the 1920s or 30s. And what it consisted of was a a nervous woman, usually, sometimes a man, would be put to bed for six weeks to two months and given a really rich, heavy diet with a lot of meat and milk, and then given electricity and massage to stimulate muscles. Because, of course, if if you're on bed rest for that long, your muscles start to atrophy. And the thought was that if a person um, gained both fat and blood. So they gained like a lot more, you know, it was built around the idea of bolstering the nervous system. And it was thought that this would help cure all sorts of ailments from what we now think of as depression and anxiety to headaches to sometimes anorexia, although they didn't really have those diagnoses back then. It was all sort of under umbrella diagnoses like neurasthenia and hysteria. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and and definitely mostly women, um, you know, is a, a nervous condition. And so if you just lay in bed and eat steak, um, 
and don't think about anything, maybe you're going to feel better, I guess, right? Right. That's the basic idea. Yeah. And the idea that if you build up your fat and blood in your system, you will gain in all other aspects of health. That was kind of the philosophy behind it. According to the inventor, who who is this um, Philadelphia neurologist named Silas Weir Mitchell, and he really thought that most women with nervous ailments were too thin and they lacked blood. They were anemic. So he wanted them to rest, gain weight, and like eat a lot of beef. And this would help, (laughs) in his opinion. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, and that definitely, Elizabeth would fit into that category. And the first one that she does is in his uh, vein and according to his particular treatment. So, But it wasn't just the U.S. that had this. Um, we're going to see that Elizabeth's going to also do one over in Europe. So how widespread was this treatment at that time? It was pretty widespread throughout um, America and Western Europe and Nordic countries. I mean, you could do some version of a rest cure in a lot of different places. In fact, there's a really good book I would recommend if you're very interested in how the rest cure played out in different countries. Um, it focuses a lot on Britain, but also on, you know, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, Denmark, like how different European countries adapted the rest cure to their own needs. And mostly they kept the central elements of it the same, but they might alter a few little things. Like in Britain, it was a gynecologist who imported the cure. Hmm. So actually he focused more on like women's reproductive issues as well as their mental health. And the two things were thought to be corrected. So he might like try to correct the positioning of the uterus, for example, while he was curing your, you know, your mental health issue. Um, So it was a little different in every country. So did you have to go away to do a rest cure or was it something that you just got into bed and didn't get back out at your own house for (laughs) six weeks or how did that work? That's a really good question. I mean, I think the classic version of the rest cure was done away from the home because Mitchell, the inventor of the rest cure, thought that a lot of the problem came from invalids being coddled by their relatives, right? So he would hire trained professional nurses who were instructed not to interact with or coddle the patients too much, not to indulge their whims. And part of it was this idea of moral medicine for the invalid. So she wouldn't, um, you know, she wouldn't be a drain on the resources and time of her family members who were taking care of her. So this was part of the philosophy behind the rest cure was getting her out of her home environment where she had developed these problems Mm. and might continue to develop, you know, it might get worse if she were in that same environment. But then if you read, for instance, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, Mm -hmm. she's talking about kind of a modified version of the rest cure that was done in the home under the supervision of her husband, who was a doctor. So he kind of implements Mitchell's rest cure, but with a few variations. And he does it, I think, not in their regular home, but in this rented house that they've taken for the summer, I think. And so you could do it at home, but the typical classic version was in some sort of a clinic. Okay. So basically he felt like probably your family was enabling you to be depressed or to not feel well. And so he needed to get you away from them. Basically. Yeah. Okay. So uh, did we have some more popular than other areas 
for rest cures like there were for my hometown that did the water cures? <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. I think the classic place to do it if you were really serious about getting the best rest cure was Mitchell's Clinic in Philadelphia. And it was kind of like, if you think of like celebrity rehab today, you know, it was like where the wealthy people went. And even though it wasn't a very pleasant sounding cure, there was this like people watching element of seeing all these wealthy women come and go and get their rest cures. So I've actually read letters from patients who were writing about, oh, you know, there's all these there's all these famous people here now. And Mitchell himself is kind of a celebrity, you know, and so they enjoyed that aspect of it. Sure. So that was kind sure. of like where the really wealthy people or um, people who felt their case was really serious would go. But I've heard anecdotally about lots of other places that became popular for rest cures. Um, I read in a novel from the 1920s about Pasadena being a popular spot for rest cures, which makes a lot of sense because it's warm, the weather's beautiful, you know, and back then it wasn't very built up. So it was kind of, um, you know, it was just a beautiful climate and a nice place to relax. And then you hear also about I don't know. I, I can't really think of any places in particular besides Mitchell's clinic, but mm -hmm. I think it's, this was done mm -hmm. a lot of places in a lot of different clinics. Yeah. And maybe even though you can't interact with people because you are stuck in your bed, you can at least say that this famous person was in the room next to you also laying in a bed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, maybe there was, I don't know, there were stricter and less strict versions of the cure. So if you were fortunate to have a slightly more lenient doctor, maybe you might be able to walk around the grounds a little bit. As you got better, as you convalesced, maybe you would be allowed to get out of your room for a little while. Because they kind of realized, you know, after all this muscle atrophy, you have to build the muscle back again. Mm -hmm. You have to go for some walks. So you won't just like collapse when they take you out of bed. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe at that point was when you saw more of the other people at the right. clinic. Um, what would you consider some of the strangest treatments um, that were part of the rest cures? I just think if you think about the food they ate during the rest cure, it was just astounding to me to read about and um, so Silas R. Mitchell wrote this book that was kind of like his primer on the rest cure for other doctors. And it's called Fat and Blood and How to Make Them. That is actually the real <laughs> title. And it came out in 1877. And here's a list of like the typical daily menu from this rest cure. Okay. So he would say a light breakfast followed by a mutton chop as a midday dinner, bread and butter thrice a day and three or four pints of milk, which are given at and after meals. So that's a lot of milk, three or four pints. Yes. <laughs> and that's not all. To this might be added iron supplements, doses of strychnine, arsenic, and cod liver oil, which I know the arsenic sounds disturbing in the strychnine, but yeah. they thought in small doses those were nerve tonics, so those would help your nerves. Okay. And on top of that, they would make this thing called raw soup, which was kind of what it sounds like. It was one pound of raw beef um, chopped up and placed in a bottle with one pint of water and five drops of strong uh, hydrochloric acid. So they would mix that up nice. and give it to patients in this theory that they were all anemic and eating some version of raw beef soup would help them. So 
imagine these women are coming to the clinic. Many of them are kind of thin. Some of them might have been anorexic, although they didn't have that term back then. So to go from that to eating that much food Mm -hmm. like every day (laughs) would have been really a shock to the system, I think. And the raw beef soup to me struck me as by far the strangest thing. Yeah, I feel like I would have been throwing up in my bed. And then what do they do? You get to move out <laughs> at that point. That sounds terrible. So it really does. Yeah, like, and they would actually occasionally um, force feed a woman if she wouldn't take the diet or even occasionally whip her if she was disobedient and didn't eat it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that was not the norm. That was only for someone who really wasn't cooperating. Okay. So um, I'm sure we would think that we know why this became less popular, but why does history tell us that this treatment became less popular and is no longer prescribed? Yeah, well, I think there was a, there are a few reasons for that. And one is just the changing way people thought about mental illness as you approach the turn of the 20th century. So in the 19th century, people had somatic bodily explanations for mental illness, like it was caused by you know, lack of fat and blood in Mitchell's terms, or maybe by the nerves um, being oversensitive or overtaxed, which was another way he explained mental disorders. And so there was a physical explanation that seemed to require a physical cure, Hmm. right? And Hmm. so putting people to bed and feeding them all this beef and massaging them and so forth, it seemed like this was a physical remedy for a physical, for a problem that was conceived of as physical, But then when you get into the 20th century, you have more talk therapies starting to become popular with Sigmund Freud really didn't get popular in Britain until, I don't know, like the teens or 20s, but he was starting to become popular in America even earlier than that. And people were starting to think maybe there's different dynamics at work, like mental illnesses are different than physical illnesses and neurasthenia kind of fell out of favor as a diagnosis too because it was this umbrella diagnosis in the 19th century that just meant sort of lack of energy or nerve force Mm -hmm. and it incorporated Mm -hmm. all the different illnesses that we now think of as separate right like it could you know you could have anxiety and be diagnosed as neurasthenic or depression or an eating disorder or migraines or any number of other things could fall under that umbrella And so in the 20th century, people started separating out those diseases and thinking of them as potentially having separate causes, separate um, treatments. And so people became just more specific in their diagnoses and the treatments became more specific to the disease. And also people became more open to talk therapy as a way of dealing with mental illness as opposed to just putting someone to bed because the mental illness had a physical origin. That is so fascinating. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the difference in the use of these between men and women um, and and the prescription of rest cures being mainly for women. What was the, the story behind that? Um, well, the idea, I think, was partly about reinforcing social roles. Like women were supposed to be passive and obedient and confined to the home and caring for children and housework. And so putting them to bed is kind of like a domestic, you know, they're still within the domestic space, 
even if they're in a, in a clinic, it's like a pseudo domestic space. So it's reinforcing gender roles, passivity, all of that kind of thing. And men did receive the rest cure, but usually they were given a little more leeway in terms of what they could do. Like there was one male patient I read about who was allowed out of bed for four hours a day because he just was bored lying in bed all day, as you would be, (laughs) you know, and he could even spend one hour a day at his place of business. So he was allowed to continue working to some extent. Hmm. And so men who got the rest cure sometimes had it a little easier because the doctors understood, okay, you need some time out of bed, maybe even some time at work. And there was also what was known as the West Cure for nervous men, where this was totally opposite, where they would send some men out West to sort of, I guess, play cowboy really was what they would do. Like they would, you know, go rough riding and and roping cattle and like learning to be cowboys basically, or go camping and fishing and like, male bonding out West was thought to be the way to toughen them up for like, you know, their, their struggles in commerce and industry that they would have to go back to. So it was kind of this idea of for women, you put them to bed and make them domestic and passive for men, you get them out West and you get them rugged and strong. So they're ready to do like battle in the capitalist workplace, you know, like go back to that. So it's very different ideologies and, um, predictably, the men seem to really like the West Cure because it's like yeah. this long vacation, vacation. with yeah. vacation with other guys, right? And it's like like being at a dude ranch or something, you know. Whereas the women have this more restricted experience that some of them did say they liked, but others really didn't. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, just the different gender ideologies for what men and women were supposed to be like and what should have a healing influence on them. So I have a copy of Elizabeth's book here with me, and we've talked before about the fact that you've read this uh, Dark Lantern, that she wrote a novel based on her experience with the rescuers that she'd done. Um, how realistic is her portrayal of of rescuers from your perspective? It's been a few years since I've read that book, but it struck me as pretty realistic Um, Because the doctor is trying to be very authoritative and kind of bossy with his patients, which Mm -hmm. Mitchell definitely did that. And he encouraged other doctors to be like, you know, you have to be the moral authority in the room and get the woman to like submit to your will. So um, I think, is his name Dr. Garth Wilkinson in the book? It is Garth, Vincent Garth. Garth Garth Vincent. Garth Vincent. Yes. Right. So Garth Vincent, he's kind of this unpleasant guy and he forces one patient to eat a meal after she's hidden it in a chimney, you know, so again, kind of like force feeding his patients and treating them badly, even though these are upper crust women who are used to being treated well, Mm -hmm. but the idea is they have to be like submissive to his will. And I thought in a dark lantern, it was kind of funny that um, Elizabeth Robbins uh, protagonist actually kind of likes his bossy unpleasantness Mm -hmm. and she falls in love with him. Mm -hmm. And this probably wasn't that uncommon if you think about it, because like these women were really bored. They weren't allowed to, to write, to sew, to read, to have letters, to like communicate with their friends. And so if you had nothing of interest happening every day, except for your doctor coming in for part of the day, maybe you would fall in love with the doctor because you just really had nothing else to think about. 
no one else to really get attached to. And so that strikes me as one realistic outcome. And Virginia Woolf also read A Dark Lantern, and she actually said, ah, yes, this describes what happens, how you fall in love with your doctor when you have a rest cure. And she had had several rest cures, so I assume she knew what she was talking about. And this is something that later in therapeutic contexts would come to be known as transference. You know, you share your feelings or your thoughts with your doctor, or you have some kind of rapport with them, and this translates somehow into romantic love. And that's just like part of what happens in therapy sometimes or what can happen. Yeah. But I it mean, was poorly you feel understood. Heard. Yeah. You yeah. feel heard, right? You have somebody listening to you, even if he's unpleasant at other times, maybe sometimes he listens, mm-hmm. right? So that could translate into romantic love. And people didn't really understand that transference was part of the normal um, therapeutic process at that time. And so she, like Catherine Darenham, is that her name? She falls in love with Garth Vincent because she thinks this is real love. Like she doesn't realize it's like a byproduct of the therapy. So it seems to me like a very realistic way that a rest cure could go. Um, I'm not that all rest cures did go that way, right? You didn't always end up marrying the doctor at the end, but I could see how that could happen because these women were so bored and so secluded and then there's that natural intimacy of the doctor-patient relationship that could lead to transference. So I could definitely see how that could happen. Well, cool. Are there other novels that you would recommend about rescuers that people might want to read? Yeah, um, definitely Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. As I said, she had several rescuers herself, and so she really knew what she was talking about. And it's kind of hard to diagnose people from the past, like to know what illness they had. But she was probably bipolar, just looking at her letters and her behavior and what her husband thought that she had. And he thought that she was manic depressive. And um, so trying to get her to go to bed for weeks at a time was kind of a disaster because she just didn't want to eat all that food and lie down when she was in a manic phase. There was just no way. Mm -hmm. So she hated the rest cure. And she has a book called Mrs. Dalloway. It's a pretty famous novel where there's a, a shell-shocked World War I veteran called Septimus Smith who commits suicide because he doesn't want to do a rest cure. Like his doctors oh, say, you need to go to my house in the country and do a rest cure. And like, he's just so appalled by this idea that he c- kills himself. Wow. And um, I think there's rumors that Wolf killed herself to avoid another rest cure, although I don't really know if that's true. I think she was also really afraid about World War II, um, you know, and how that would affect her family and her country. So that contributed to it as well. But um, certainly the fear of doing another rest cure might have been a contributing factor. Um, so Wolf was is somebody who you could read. And of course, there's the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which is really famous by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. That's about a modified version of the rest cure. And that's how I first found out about the rest cure, that it even existed. And I think a lot of people find, if they know about the rest cure, that's how they find out about it. Well, we are going to have a a separate episode at some point on Virginia Woolf. Um, She was very good friends with Elizabeth Robbins, and uh, they were friends at the time of her suicide. And actually, uh, Robbins' best friend other than that uh, was Virginia's doctor at the time. So 
it's, that's going to be a really interesting thing to cover um, based on all of that. So we've got lots of letters we'll get to eventually. So I'm glad you touched on that. What do you think? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I really yeah. want to listen to that episode. <laughs> season two, season two. Um what do you think, I mean, if a lot of people probably haven't heard of rescuers at all before, but if they have, is there any kind of misconception that is pretty widespread that you would want to debunk while we're talking about it? I guess just the idea that only women had them. And I would say usually that's the case, that mostly it was women who had them. But there were some men who had the rescuer and... Um, there were some men who had the West cure too, which is kind of the polar opposite. And, but I think it's related because it's like the logic is the opposite of the rest cure, you know, send men out West, put women to bed, but there were some men who actually did the rest cure too. So that's a common misconception that you see. And um, also just where, when people think about the origins of the rest cure, one thing they don't know is that Mitchell actually developed the cure on male patients originally mm-hmm. okay. um, because he was treating nerve like Civil War veterans um, so during the Civil War, like so they had just been injured, who had gunshot wounds that had caused damage to nerves. Mm-hmm. So people who were mm-hmm. in a lot of pain and there was really not much he could do for them other than pain medication and putting them to bed you know, and building up their nerve tissue with, you know, rest and feeding. And also he had to use massage and um, electro electrical stimulation of the muscles to keep their muscles from atrophying. And in that case, it was because these men were bedridden. They were really, really sick. So they had to stay in bed. So that was actually how he developed the cure was on male soldiers. And not a lot of people know this. And so The fact that, you know, they were the original guinea pigs for the cure is interesting. And it's associated now with women, but it was actually developed for male soldiers. And it was still given to men, even like kind of in its heyday when it became more associated with women. That is so interesting. So you're obviously very interested in rescuers. What led you to go? I think I'm going to spend my life researching rescuers. How how did you get there? (laughs) Well, I haven't spent my whole life uh, studying (laughs) rest cures, but how I got interested in it was years ago, I was writing a dissertation on neuroscience in popular fiction in 19th century Britain. And I was mostly focusing on monster novels and how they sort of play on people's fears of, you know, brain functions being out of our control because some of them are automatic and reflex. And this kind of undermined people's religious ideas of an independent soul or will. So that was the question I was researching. But then I heard about this man named Silas Weir Mitchell in Philadelphia, who was both a neurologist and a novelist. That's originally how I got interested in him because um, he, he, he was a fairly successful novelist in his own day. And there was one of his novels that was actually required reading in U.S. high schools up until the 1950s. So he was like a pretty big deal on the literary scene. And he also was famous for The Rest Cure, which I knew about through Gilman's short story, um, The Yellow Wallpaper. And then I found out that UCLA, where I was doing my dissertation, had this special collection on Mitchell in the biomedical library. And so I started doing research there. 
And it just kind of like spiraled from that point because I got really interested in Mitchell's own writings. And he really fascinated me because he's just like his letters and his private personal writings are so interesting um, where like he's very sympathetic and he like fat and blood. If you read that book, you'll just think of him as a medical villain Mm because he comes across as this control freak who's putting women to bed against their will and trying to discipline them into being these proper domestic, you know, um, ladies and just not letting them do anything by themselves. So that's kind of the impression I had of Mitchell initially. But when I started reading his private letters and communications, I was getting such a different picture of who he was as a human being and the fact that he was close friends with a lot of women and men and, Um, some of his correspondence is at the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. And I ended up going there several times and just reading a lot of his letters and just feeling like, almost like I knew him as a person, because I'd read so much of his private correspondence. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I got into this was just hearing about this guy who was both a neurologist and a novelist, which was kind of a different way to explore the questions of neurology and literature that I was looking at. And then it kind of became a separate obsession because I realized it didn't really fit in with my dissertation. And it became just like a series of articles in an ongoing interest. I love that. So you've mentioned a couple resources for people if they want to keep reading about rest cures. Is there anything else that you wanted to recommend to people that you haven't covered yet? Um, let's see, there was a really good book that I like that I wanted to talk about. If you're interested in rest cures in England and in Europe, because I know that's where Elizabeth um, Robbins had one of her rest cures. Uh, and it's called Cultures of Neurasthenia from Beard to the First World War. And this is an edited collection of essays. And the editors are Roy Porter, who's this really famous historian of science. And Marika Geiswit Hofstra, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but she's Dutch. Okay. So she kind of looks at the Dutch perspective, like Dutch rest cures. And then other contributors look at British rest cures. Um, I think like Scandinavian rest cures and how they were different. And they have different patient case histories and things. And I really like this book because it shows how in different cultural contexts, the rest cure was adapted differently Mm -hmm. and apparently the last culture to sort of embrace the rest cure was actually like east asian cultures like the last place it was popular was like china and japan and places like that um where even into the 20th century it was uncomfortable to talk about mental illness and they still like to conceive of mental illness as physical so it's weird that the rest cure had kind of this this later heyday in asian countries Um, So that book is really fascinating. And then um, there was a biography of Mitchell by Nancy Cervetti that came out in 2014, I think. So if you really, if you really are interested in Mitchell, like I was, and you want to know more about him, I recommend her biography. And the title is um, S. Weir Mitchell, Philadelphia's Literary Physician. Actually, it was 2012 when that came out. But that's a good one. And I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many good works on the rest cure. And, you know, there's shorter ones that provide a little digest. And then there's really long books that really go in depth. So um, I I don't even know. I could go on for a long time about that. But those are just two that were really helpful to me when I was writing about Mitchell. 
Elizabeth would end up really despising the rest cure experience. Laying in bed, forbidden to read or write, did not revitalize her, but only brought on depression and discouragement. She would go on to use what she'd been through to write the novel titled Black Magic Man. She'd ultimately change the title to A Dark Lantern, a story with a prologue. In the book, a young woman named Catherine visits the land of Argovinia and falls in love with its handsome prince. He soon makes her a proposal of marriage, but marriage to him won't make her a princess. He also plans to marry a second woman, a real princess, who will be his official wife. Catherine will take the role of a mornagatic wife, which means she would be an acknowledged spouse of the king and her children would be considered legitimate, but they would be unable to inherit the property or titles of their father. Then she finds out he's also involved with a third woman. Catherine is horrified, and the stress of it all leads to a nervous breakdown. She begins a rest cure under the care of Dr. Garth Vincent, and the reader sees and feels the effect of the rest cure through her eyes. Elizabeth wasn't the only one turned off by rest cures, and the medical fad would fade. Just like those of bleeding people with leeches, going to spas to drink and bathe in mineral water, and engorging yourself with meat. Elizabeth would try that treatment, too. But that is a story for another podcast. In the next episode of the Elizabeth Robbins Diary podcast, Elizabeth will help us understand how people entertain themselves in their homes when television or radio hadn't yet been invented. Thank you for listening to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary podcast, a creation and production of Brooksville Main Street, a nonprofit focused on economic redevelopment through historic preservation and placemaking. The podcast is made possible with the help of a generous grant from Florida Humanities and the brilliant minds of our guest experts like Dr. Stiles. Would you please consider following and rating the podcast? By following us, you'll be sure not to miss an episode. And rating is a super helpful way to help us spread the word and support all the hard work of the following people. Life Thomason of Odd Life Studios produced this content as well as editing, mixing, and mastering it. Tom and Patria Dye opened Profound Revelation Studios in downtown Brooksville, allowing us to create this content right in the heart of our city. The docents of the Chinsegat Hill Historic Site Nandria Reed generously provided research support and advice. Barry Mindel of Debar Design created our lovely graphics. Elisa Babor of Roots Creative Co. designed an amazing website and social media. Randy Olson of Live Oak Theatre wrote and performed our theme song, Time is Whispering. Elizabeth Robbins' diary and letters are housed in the special collections in New York University's Vales Library. Those resources are quoted with the kind permission of Independent Age. Find out more about them at independentage.org. And of course, Elizabeth Robbins, who lived such a fascinating life and documented it for us so well, even when she was forbidden to write and was supposed to be lying in bed doing nothing at all during her rest cure. Though I am a little aggravated with her at the moment. She wrote the diary entry read for this episode in pencil, which has naturally smudged and faded over the last 122 years. Transcribing her diaries is never easy, but this one was a beast. Even so, it is an honor for me to executive produce, write, and host this telling of her story.